for the privilege of being able to come before you, to be able to address you specifically, to look straight at you and be able to talk to you, to bring up our troubles, our petitions, the things we need, um, the people that we know are hurting. We thank you for all these things and we ask that you help us to truly understand our position in you, in Christ, as members of the body of Christ, that you help us to pursue unity as a church, but also to be aware of the importance of being doctrinally correct and the way that you uh, put an importance on that in the New Testament and you highlight that, it's, it's something that we really need to be aware of and be able to find a biblical balance of. And I ask that you help us to do that as we're looking at opposing viewpoints and as we're, as we're moving forward. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As God is my witness, I think this is going to be our last lesson on imminence. But feel free to not quote me on that, because I've said that like six times. So, in a brief review, we've been spending quite a bit of time, and there, there are other arguments to this general subject, where people bring up objections to the idea of imminency, the idea that Jesus could come back at any moment. There are other arguments. I had another slide, but I think we can fit those into each individual opposing viewpoint as we interact with them specifically. So we're not going to really highlight them and spend time on them. We've spent quite a bit of time looking at other viewpoints, objections to our, what we believe is the biblical understanding of the imminent return of Jesus Christ for his church. And I, I do mean that. We've spent an exhaustive amount of time on this. Um, for good reason, though, because it helps us to think through issues and helps us to make it so that we're... You, you can't really know your own position until you're able to answer the opposing viewpoints, the other side of the argument, because there's always a counter-argument to every position. And so it would be uh, wrong to leave us in a vacuum where we're not able to actually answer their concerns, a lot of which were valid. We went through a lot of them, which are, if you don't have a good biblical framework, it, I mean, these make sense in light of certain parts of scripture. So what we tried to do is we tried to answer these objections in a way that would make sense, in a way that we could really communicate what the Bible actually says on the subject. The last, and there's a reason I made this last, the last argument is this idea that it is a brand new doctrine, that the idea of not only imminence, but also the pre-tribulational rapture, the idea that Jesus will come before the tribulational period, is accused of being a brand new doctrine. Um, so what we were doing and what we tried to accomplish last week as we went through that was going through a few viewpoints, a few positionary statements, we'll call them that, um, where they tried to make the argument that it's a new doctrine. And this idea of newness held what they considered to be a negating factor, where because it is a new doctrine, therefore, we don't have to follow it. Therefore, it's wrong. Therefore, what, whatever the therefore you want to put there, that's what they would use to try to negate the biblical basis for the argument. Though they make no biblical argument in that accusation. So we looked at the basis and the foundation and the framework for their argument. We spent quite a bit of time on that. Basically, if it's a brand new doctrine, <clears throat> and the church is almost 2,000 years old now, 
and we've only been really doing it for a tenth of the church age, how do we know this is a truly biblical doctrine? How do we know that? And they'll use, like, I like the verse from 2 Thessalonians. We might as well just turn there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, because this is one I hear all the time, especially by post-tribbers. We're going to be spending a little bit more time in this uh, this chapter when we get into post-tribulationalism. But it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. We spent a lot of time on that particular verse looking at what apostasy actually means, apostasia in the Greek. And we came to this conclusion that it's not just some ambiguous general apostatizing of the church, members of the church, or people. We came to the conclusion that this is a foretold prophetic event all the way from the Old Testament where God, in his kingdom program, set up a king, set up a perfect righteous king, the son of God, sent him to Israel, fulfilled prophecy, verified and validated who he was, and then Israel said, no, we reject the king of God's own choosing. And what's going to happen is not only are they going to reject it, that's just one side of the coin, that already happened, but they're also going to instead put a new king on the throne who's going to be Antichrist. That's right. So that is the great apostasy because that is the foretold event in Daniel chapter 9 that is going to start the tribulational period. So now the trick is, I, yeah, in any case... That's what that means. But what people do is they see the word apostasy, and because there's no specific proper noun attached to that, they say, oh, well, this could mean whatever I want it to mean. And so it suddenly becomes the pre-tribulational rapture theory, is what they call it. Um, because this is a, it's a departure from truth. It's an apostasy um, of biblical truth. Because if we've been doing something for 1,800 years allegedly, again, we prove that's not the case either, then the departure to a belief that we're going to escape the tribulational period is the first half of what they consider to be the apostasy. And the way they look at it is all of these pre-trib rapture believers are going to believe that Jesus is coming before the rapture, or I'm sorry, before the tribulational period to rapture the church. But once the trib starts and we find ourselves in it, we're just going to be like, oh, well, I guess the Bible's not true. So they look at what they're expecting to be pre-trib rapture believers in the beginning of the trip falling away to be the apostasy. It's actually kind of funny when you look at It's not funny, but it's kind of interesting when you look at it um, because it's, it's the age-old argument of demonizing the opposing viewpoint, uh, similar to Martin Luther calling the Pope the Antichrist. Okay, it's figure out what works best, whatever sells the best, and then go with that. So in any case, just keep that in mind. You're going to see that a lot. When they say apostasy, if you don't have a specific event, prophetic event that could be linked to something like that, when it doesn't define what it is in the text, you'll find people define it however they want to. And we're going to be seeing that a lot as we look at what I would consider to be every other viewpoint on 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 that is not talking about the rapture, not talking about 
Daniel's 70th week, the beginning point, is going to really, really mesh the lines about what uh, apostasia actually means. So just keep that in mind. So when they say this is a new doctrine, that's kind of what a lot of them end up alluding to. Um, So in any case, the basic assumption is why would God let a false doctrine pop up at the end if, or better yet said, why would God let the church believe something post-tribulationalism or amillennialism in large case, if you're the Catholic church or many of the reformers, why would God let us believe something for over a thousand years just to tell us later that it's wrong? So that's the basic assumption that they're going off of. And that's what we're going to really be looking into. Now, just as a reminder from last week, we went over and it was ex- it was exhausting to read them. My voice went out halfway through the lesson. Uh, but the work of Dr. William C. Watson, a historian, where he went through, not just, not just for our sake, but for all the other sakes, just showing the diversity of opinion uh, in the early church. Because what one of the main things people will argue is that the early church was post-trib, or they'll say the early church, fourth century on, was Amel. Like, they'll give a specific idea and act as if that's what all the church was. But what's interesting is the more that we find out about church history is that it was a range of viewpoints. We looked at the early medieval Christians, finding that some of them were pre-wrath. Some of them were post-trib. Some of them were mid-trib. We also looked at some that could be taken as either uh, pre-wrath or pre-trib, because again, pre-tribulational rapture expectation is a pre-wrath expectation, because again, not to be confused with the actual pre-wrath group, because they try to make it as confusing as possible. But what we found is they're not only ones that could be pre-trib and pre-wrath, we also found ones that had to be pre-trib, just by the way they were worded. Um, so again, now, you're probably not going to remember that in 180, Irenaeus wrote something that specifically helped us when it comes up in an argument. But just so you know, when you hear these arguments about the historicity of a viewpoint, it does not necessarily strengthen their argument. So, and that's, that's really the point that I'm trying to make. And there are, there are entire books and articles written on these subjects. But just so we're clear, I mean, it's not... It's clear-cut as they want you to make it assume. They want you to assume that they're correct and that it's absolutely clear that the pre-trib viewpoint is a brand-new doctrine. It's not. It's not at all brand-new. In fact, we would argue that it's, uh, that it's apostolic in nature, but that is a subject we're going to be getting into as we move forward. So we looked at the work of Dr. Thomas Ice, the director of the pre-trib study group. He does a lot of good work in this area, and he's written a lot of articles. He's also debated a lot of people. So there are a lot of his debates online that are quite entertaining. Um, in fact, it's funny. If you, if you want a good one, there's one he did with Alan Kirshner of the, uh, Dr. Alan Kirshner for the pre-RAF viewpoint. And Kirshner was very militant in the way he's talking, and Thomas Ice is just... I don't want to call him flippant, but he was just kind of sitting there, and it, it, was, it was entertaining. If you want to look it up, it's, it's kind of funny. But they talk about some of these issues. They talk about mostly imminency. 
Because if you're pre-wrath and you're trying to push away the idea of a pre-trib rapture, you have to argue that the rapture isn't imminent first. If you can win that argument, then it's pre-wrath every single time. So uh, that being said, especially if you can redefine what the time of Jacob's trouble is and what the tribulation is and when that actually starts. So in any case, we ended last week reading what was essentially uh, a statement by Paul Benoit. And having done that, we need to now look at how we can actually respond to these arguments, how we can actually interact with the opposing viewpoint now that we have all this information. Because that's really, that's really what it comes down to. Like, how can we honestly, in an honest intellectual way, respond to concerns that people have about this being a new doctrine? Now, we, there are, again, we could spend weeks just on this subject, looking at old manuscripts, looking at different things. But I think it's, I think it's a lot easier than that. So the first point is that we need to look at the history of the early church. Well, we've done that. In the church fathers specifically, there is evidence of premillennialism in the ranks of church history, something that people thought was never the case at one point in history. Main reason is the Catholic Church had an issue with that because the Catholic Church believes itself to be what? The kingdom. They believe themselves to be the ones bringing in the kingdom because they believe in a form of amillennialism throughout church history which is why since they're in the kingdom, they need a standing army, they need a treasury, they need all of these things because they misunderstand the fact that the kingdom is still yet future. So that being said, um, yes, the early church believed things that we would agree with. They also believed in things that we don't agree with. Because again, this is something we're going to be emphasizing truly above everything we just looked at is we're not basing, this is actually a very Catholic doctrine, we're not basing our understanding of the Bible on what the church fathers believed. They believed in a lot of things that we would believe to be heresy. Um, like incredibly heretical. <laughs> um, a lot of them actually believed they were going to be meeting Antichrist. A lot of them believed in rand, post-trib, pre-wrath, mid-trib. Some believed in the partial rapture theory. Um, there is historical evidence to believe that there were people who believe that, which is the idea that if you, you have to be living in fellowship with God and be doing every, like kind of like lordship salvation, just in relation to the rapture, you have to be believing and walking with him, or you might just miss the boat. You could still be a Christian, but you might just not get raptured. That's the idea of the partial rapture theory. We'll look at that later. Um, but the, Early church, some of those people, I say early church meaning the first four or five centuries of early church history, believed that. There were some, and we're going to look at quotes when we get to the pre, uh, or the partial rapture theory, which we'll probably spend like five minutes on. It's easy to argue against. Um, that being said, again, we're not building doctrine about what the church fathers said. We're, we need to first and foremost go to the Bible. Um, if you've ever debated a Catholic um, a Roman Catholic in particular, every time you bring up doctrine, they will immediately go to church history. Because if they can act like you don't know anything, because a lot of Protestant Christianity is ignorant of church history, then they can act like your ignorance of church history indicates an ignorance somewhere else. And then they can argue doctrine on the basis of something you know nothing about. So th I've, I've dealt with, um, I forget his name, 
he's an apologist for Catholicism, and that's usually what they, what they shoot for. So if you can get the argument to be on the Bible, you, you have a chance. And the same thing would apply to the rapture, too. What you'll notice is a lot of viewpoints, particularly the post-trib viewpoint, which we're going to be looking at soon, um, they try very much to take it, your eyes off of doctrine and your eyes onto history. So that's part of the reason we're going into so much detail about this now, because it's such a popular argument with that position we're about to look at. So again, we have to look at the uh, origins of that doctrine pertaining to John Nelson Darby. Because again, the basic, the basic lie that I told you I wasn't going to spend any time on is that um, this woman named Margaret MacDonald had a uh, prophetic utterance and she was taken possession of her body and she had this speech and it's from her prophecy that she made that John Nelson Darby got the idea of the rapture. Basic historical outlook shows that he actually preceded her and what's more is her prophetic utterance is more, more closely resembles the post-trib rapture position, not the pre tribulational one. But if you know nothing about her, you know nothing about Darby, you know nothing about when Darby came up with that opinion, it's easy to come to that conclusion. So just kind of keep that in mind. When they, if they bring up John Nelson Darby, it's to distract from the argument which should be centered on scripture. So um, that's why I made the note, which is that we need to look at both ours and our, I don't want to call it our opponent, but our, uh, our aggressor's epistemology. We need to look at um, how do we know what we know? Like, how do we know what we know is true? Like this basic study. Um, we base our understanding of truth solely on scripture. We believe that when it connects to science, when science is mentioned, scripture is absolute in truth. We believe it supersedes science. And we've believed that since the beginning of the doctrine of ins inspiration. The reason for that is because every time science comes up, and the Bible agrees with it, the Bible is never given any credence. And when the Bible disagrees with sci known science at the time, and 400 years goes past and it's turned out to be true, the Bible is also not given any credit for what it is. Because again, if the same God who created the universe and created matter wrote the Bible, then you would assume that because this God is true, perfect, and righteous, that everything said in the Bible would also replicate those attributes of him. And we found that to be the case. If you look up the idea of apologetics, there's a lot of information about that. So, five-step point to be able to answer this argument. Um, first, the idea of determining truth from history is actually, again, this is what I was saying earlier, a very Roman Catholic idea. We don't derive truth from what people thought was true before. Truth is never determined by what people have believed in the past and is certainly not derived from majority opinion. How often is the majority opinion correct? There's a reason we're not a straight democracy in this country. Um, if that were the case, three or four cities would decide every election we ever had. So that being said, Two, there is a doctrine known as progressive illumination. Now, this is critically important. The basic content of that doctrine is that the church didn't know everything there was to know about biblical doctrine all at once. 
We didn't. It took years and centuries to hash out certain doctrinal truths. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 12. I'm going to argue for this in the best way that I know how. Just to make, just to make the point. There's, there are studies that have been done on this too. So in Daniel chapter 12, if we start in verse 1, it says, Now at that time Michael... The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth. Knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one at the bank of the river and the other on the banks of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it will be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So a few things that we really need to focus on here. First, back to verse four. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. So what was written in this book wasn't for Daniel. It wasn't for Daniel's time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. That's, that is a, an illusion. I forget which book of the Bible um, to this idea of, uh, again, that we're going to be looking at progressive illumination. It's the word of God that's actually being concerned, talked about. He says in verse 8, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Daniel wanted to know. I don't blame him at all. He wanted to know what these things meant. And I mean, he just saw a pretty terrifying vision of his people getting trampled throughout the visions he had have over the course of his life leading up to this one. And he said, uh, the angel, go your way, Daniel. For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Again, he, and some people make this argument and they're correct to do so, which is that we understand the things in the book of Daniel far better than Daniel ever did. We have a cheat sheet. We can look back at history and we can see that. We can see um, 483 years being fulfilled to the exact second until Jesus came. And we know that there are seven years still on the horizon. Um, 
again, that's to the people that don't believe there's going to be a seven-year literal tribulational period uh, because there are a lot of people who are arguing that right now, which we'll get into later. Let's, let's go to John chapter 16. It says, in John chapter 16, we will read verses 12 through 13. It says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Again, if you look throughout the New Testament, if you look throughout the Old Testament, this basic idea that just because there's truth there, just because there's God-revealed truth, doesn't mean that we're going to understand it all at once. Because again, it may not pertain to our time. Clearly, it did not pertain to Daniel's time. Yet, that was still good truth. It was still God-inspired truth that people were able to use to figure out where the Messiah was going to be born, that we are using right now to know when the tribulational period is going to be happening, what starts the trib. We learn a lot about the Greeks, the Persians, the nations that followed the Babylonian dispersion, um, Antiochus Epiphanes. We know a lot of stuff just from the book of Daniel hundreds of years in advance. And so just because the truth is there doesn't mean that everybody present for that truth is going to understand it all in totality at that moment. Likewise, there are going to be things I would assume that we have the potential to understand prophecy better than the generation that preceded us. And if the Lord tarries, our children might be able to understand it better than us. Assuming we stay true to the word and put priority to it. It's let's change to 1 Peter chapter 1. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 that as to this salvation the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, the, the nuances of prophecy, who are they more useful to in a practical sense, looking back at history, the people in the fourth century who were allegorizing the text are the people who are presumably going to be very close to the rapture. The people who are going to tell people about the rapture in large numbers so that when it happens, people know why it happened. I would make the argument that it makes a lot more sense that as God is progressively illuminating truth, that prophecy would be the last page of the book prior to the rapture. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And if people argue the point that, well, you can't really say that because, again, there's so much of church history that didn't really have that doctrine nailed down. When did we actually nail down the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone? When did that get nailed down? 
three quarters through church history that was not nailed down. And then kind of literally, uh, per Martin Luther, it was nailed down. Um, But that being said, they still had things that they didn't understand. Martin Luther was Catholic. Martin Luther had no desire to leave the Catholic Church. Martin Luther believed in infant baptism. He, by God's grace, went to literal interpretation when it came to the book of Galatians. But that uh, prophetic, I shouldn't say prophetic, that literary understanding did not extend to the book of Revelation. And we see that by the, uh, the title assignments he made to the Pope and bishops in relation to the book of Revelation. So moving on, additionally, times within church history of heavy persecution, which is the majority of the church's past, um, didn't leave a lot of extra time and elbow room to study these things out in detail. If you're running away from Neronian persecution, you're, you're not going to try to make time to, to study these things out in the systematized way that we have been blessed to do so in this bubble we call America, the United States of America. Again, Due to this, doctrine was established in phases as time progressed, such as salvation, literal interpretation, spiritual gifts, all of these things. Um, None of those gifts were 100% even in the first generation post-John. If you read the writings of Polycarp, Irenaeus, these two generations that immediately followed, they did not have everything right, and they got their truth from the Apostle John. So again, it it shouldn't blow our minds that throughout church history, we have problems. Paul went to Thessalonica to teach specific doctrines to them at an advanced level. And within six months, he had to send a second letter to correct them where they, uh, where they made mistakes. Again, that's not to, to bash the Thessal- Thessalonican church or Thessalonian church. It's just to show the fact that This is why this argument really falls short of the target, because if we're looking at church history, church history is not an indicator of the legitimacy of a doctrine or an indicator of truth. Though it is possible to defend against historical attacks, like we've just demonstrated, you can look at church history at the writings to do, um, against the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture, it is completely unnecessary for us to even engage in. The important thing is you know it's there, okay? The important thing is you know church history does not negate the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture, that there have been people throughout the course of church history who believed it prior to John Nelson Darby, one of the biggest fallacies against our position. Um, The measure, what is the measure of a biblical doctrine? Don't look at the screen. Not that my screen is either a, uh, yeah, in any case, if you're looking at scripture, can you argue a position from scripture in its totality? I'm not just talking about from Thessalonians chapter one. I'm talking about from Genesis to Revelation. Can you argue the point that's being made in first Thessalonians? Because that's the question. Peter, in the argument he makes in first Peter, talking about prophecy, that point he makes can be argued from the entirety of scripture. You can argue it just based upon the exegesis and be totally within proper uh, study methods. But you could expand that. You could argue that same point and show that it, it, 
parallels with the rest of revealed truth by God. Again, because this is one book, one message, different points of the message, all leading from Eden all the way until God is able to bring history to where it's ultimately going to go. The shortest point in our entire history, I'm talking grand scheme of things, eternity, is going to be this little bubble that is talked about in the Bible. This little time when humanity is on earth prior to the new heavens and the new earth. That's going to be the shortest point in our entire existence, with every single one of us being an eternal being. So again, when we do battle, when we do doctrinal battle, we do it on the basis of what is in scripture. Um, That being said, the idea of the pre-tribulational rapture is not made um, biblical through historical, historical exegesis. Like as we're looking at history, our outlook on history does not verify or negate the pre-trib rapture. Just as if this was the most prominent viewpoint of history, of church history, that wouldn't make it correct. It is made correct by how it conforms to scripture. So that being said, that's why we call it an inductive study of scripture. This idea of what is conspicuous, what is obvious, what can we get from the text without reading tremendously into it? So again, very quickly, can we argue the rapture from scripture? Let's go to John 14. We'll do that in about five minutes. Only takes a second. which there are other doctrines that all of Christianity agrees with that take far longer than five minutes to make the point. So, again, I I went the wrong way. (laughs) So John 14, starting in verse one. This is the upper room discourse. Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What is he promising here? The basic promise that he's making is twofold. One, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, where is he going? He went to the father's house. When did that happen? That happened Acts chapter 1 at the ascension. So that being said, did that actually happen? Is the first part of his promise true? Absolutely. We could read that in Acts in a second. We're not going to do that. But that being said, if the first part of his promise is true, what can we have an eager expectation of? The second part of the promise, right. And that's so exciting. Especially since... What, what did Jesus do throughout his ministry? He prophesied events. In fact, people talk about the destruction of Jerusalem as the main prophecy that validated his uh, position kind of as a prophet and a, and a suffering servant. But this is really one of the first prophecies he makes, apart from the ones that pertain to his death. So this is the per- first after-death prophecy that he did. And it was absolutely correct. So the farther off prophecy where he says he's going to do what? Come again and receive you to myself to take you to the father's house is something we can also count on. Okay, so that's the first, first piece of the puzzle. So that's, who's he promising that to? He's promising that to the apostles 
these specific individuals that he's given, uh, and I believe most or all of the spiritual gifts is my personal belief. I can't argue that from scripture. I could argue that from their, their actions, but he's given them gifts to make them apostles, to verify their position as mediators between God, the Holy Spirit, and absolute truth, and the early infant church. That's something that they were doing. And he's telling them that I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. Did that happen in the first century at the apostles? No, most of them died. So when is that going to happen? Well, it's going to happen to the church, this new church that God is about to make. Next, let's go to 1 Corinthians. Well, no, let's go to Revelation 19. We're going to skip around a little bit. And this is the last point that we're making before we're done with imminence. So I'm just trying to make the argument, and I think it's pretty easy to make. If anything, my commentary is detracting from the argument. So if you study the entire chapter of Revelation 19, and you start on verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called the faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white, fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat of the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, born free men and slaves and the small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That is the basic description of the second coming as it's about to take place. And what's happening? The church is coming with him. We are joining him for this. I don't think we're going to do all that much, but we're there. We're present. Now, the second part of that, which I think is also quite important, is if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter of the New Testament, it says, towards the very end of it, starting in verse 50, it says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What kingdom of God? The kingdom of God that Jesus was about to take possession of and make in his second coming. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I said that wrong. The perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So we know that there's going to be a resurrection. But what's interesting is that if you were to take this verse and assume this is talking about the second coming, 
Well, that, that would imply that everybody going into the second coming or into the kingdom is in a resurrected body. And we know that's not the case because there's going to be what in the kingdom? Mortals. There are going to be people who die. They're going to live a lot longer. They're, they're going to, it's, uh, if a young boy dies at 100, he's going to be considered accursed. Okay? Um, they're going to have long lives, but there's going to be mortality in this kingdom. So this verse can't really be talking about the kingdom. This has to be talking about something else. Well, to answer the question about what is this talking about, if we can quickly go to 1 Thessalonians, where we have spent a lot more time in the past, it says in verse 13 of chapter 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. But we be- if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those in Christ, those Christians who have died. That's what the euphemism fallen asleep is indicating. We are not going to precede them at the coming of the Lord. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So again, that's what we're looking towards This time when the dead in Christ, this isn't talking about every dead person who ever lived. This is talking about those in the church because that's what in Christ is indicating. It's a uh, definite article relating to those in the church. We're going to be caught up together with the Lord to always be with the Lord. Now, it doesn't say to go back to heaven. We read that from John 14. But when we figure out when this is going to happen, we actually have to go earlier in the book. It says in chapter 1, verse 10, It says, and to wait for his son from heaven. Okay, so we're waiting for the coming of his son from heaven to do what? Whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who is rescuing us from the wrath to come. And we actually see that a little bit farther in chapter 5, starting in verse 9. It says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Again, that's talking about whether you are walking in the light or not walking in the light. We see a lot of that in the book of First John. Whether you're in fellowship with the Lord or not, if you are in the Lord, you're going to take part in this event. Uh, it's not an argument to, to not do it. So to put the cherry on the top, and we will finish right here, Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to call it, 3 verse 10b, okay? (laughs) Um, We'll we'll just read verse 9 through 10. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Again, and how does, what does he relate to that? What, is he, what point does he make with that information? He says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So the Lord is coming. So therefore, this is how you ought to live. Again, always related to godly living. There's always 
always that point which is given. So when we're arguing for the rapture, I'm not going to go to church history, though I have a way to interact with those oppositional arguments. When I'm arguing for the rapture, I go first into the New Testament and I show them that. Because it is so clear. Because this coming of the Lord that is described is related to before the tribulational period. And it has to be because of the promises in 1 Thessalonians and Revelation chapter 3. Let's close with a word of prayer. And then next week, we're going to start our inductive study of post-tribulationalism, finally. Um, Yeah, we'll start that next week. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your study that you have given us in the New Testament. And we also thank you for opposition because it is through opposition that we come to a greater, more solid and more biblical and more refined understanding of the truth that you have given us. Always, Lord, any opposition to any viewpoint will make us very quickly understand it in a more thorough manner. I ask that you help us as we're examining your word, trying to understand the truth that you have there to give us discernment, to know when something is off, and to also know where in your word to look in order to determine truth. We thank you for these things. We ask that you be with us in the service to come and our fellowship with each other as we're moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.